Dear Art Genius, you wake up to groundbreaking inspirations. Breakfast is more ideas no mere mortal could fathom. In the studio, nothing less than A-R-T art in capital letters springs forth easily and effortlessly for you. Your creativity never lags. Mistakes, hesitations, doubts, you are an art genius. So you can only give us a puzzled, say what, kind of look. That's not really your thing. Rejection, questions you can't answer about your work, struggles to make people understand where you're coming from, also not your thing. Art genius, we know you could probably make kittens fly and heal all wounds, and we are really super sorry about this, but you have to die. Which is so weird because you don't, like, even exist in the first place. Either way, we're here to kill you. Welcome to Art Openings, the podcast where there are no gatekeepers, no stupid questions, no actual killing, and art for all. Hosted by Samantha Sanders and Courtney Jordan and sponsored by Artist Network. I'm your co-host, Samantha Sanders, and Courtney, before people start getting all up in arms for you threatening bodily harm, to one of our most mythic archetypes in all of art, the so-called artistic genius. Um, We have to tell everybody why this artistic genius needs to die, why he needs to die, because it's always a him. (laughs) It's definitely most always a him. So... To me, it's the aura of the artistic genius has been around for a long time, and even though it feels like forever, that actually hasn't been the case. We're going to argue today that, like plenty of accepted beliefs, this one is a product of its culture and of its time. It's just been stewing in its own gross <laughs> juices for so long that we forgot it hasn't always been there. So as we go back in time and take a closer look at how we got here, we want you to think about a few things. First, who is the myth of this artistic genius serving? Who is it excluding? And who is it hurting? Okay, let's get started. (laughs) The origin of the word genius is taken from the Greek word for birth to bring about or create or produce something, which is funny because most of our cultural touchstones for this archetype, like we said, are male. (laughs) And they all share a few common characteristics. Courtney? Genius in art, always usually someone young, shows innate, infallible ability. A blend of the divine and the talented, a God-given talent or a person who's been almost anointed by, let's face it, a Christ-like spiritual muse. They produce masterpieces that are timeless. Um, It's all about the ta-da moment. None of the the behind-the-scenes labor is ever really obvious. And the genius just keeps on going. Everything they touch just keeps getting better. So in a lot of ways, given that, you'd think the idea of the genius would be something that came from one particular genius moment in history. It's actually a mutant. It has hybrid (laughs) and like sort of transmutated, I guess is the word, over time. The first one that comes to mind when I think about the genius is the farthest back that I could find, which is Michelangelo. Um, So a lot of artists with egos have taken great pains to make themselves into geniuses. And that's what I really want to focus in on with him. He's one of the early artists earliest artist we have who has historical documentation to back up um, this kind of self. He was self, the earliest sad boy. <laughs> exactly. Self legends, making him himself into a legend. But first to understand that context, we got to talk about the culture of the Renaissance. An artist, no matter how famous or hooked up with commissions or patrons, was still just a laborer, a maker, 
a an artisan. That is that is the root of their um, that career. Art was a craft. You apprenticed. You worked in a studio, and it was a grind. It was not a you know fancy glorified job. It was yeah. it was pretty much like a labor. They were working class, right? Totally. Even. Because, you know, merchants, if you, you know, a lot of like around the Shakespeare time, like sneered on as mm-hmm. like a, um, you know, dealt with money, that kind of class. So beneath them. Exactly. Artisans were, were worse, like they or they were in a lower class. Um, so Michelangelo, though he was loaded for an artist, like he acted like a miser always. That was just his shtick. Um, but it didn't take away the fact that he wanted to get rid of that working class stigma. And so... In a lot of ways, I commiserate. I mean, he wanted a big rep. He was doing amazing things artistically speaking. I mean, obviously, we know that. But back then, he was only given as much credit as a, you know, worker who built a really nice house. But he, you know, saw himself as as more. So he did a lot of things to make that happen. Um, In 1518, there are documents mentioning Michelangelo asking a friend to burn several of his drawings. (laughs) And I do not want anyone to faint. But around that time, these drawings would have probably been preparatory sketches for the Sistine Chapel ceiling. <laughs> so that's like a real loss because we have a few and they are ah, like revered. <laughs> um, and also remember, paper was super hard to get, expensive, a luxury. Burning them would have been notable. So it's almost self-destructive too. Absolutely. At that point. Yeah. I mean, you are... But I think the way he saw it, it's like better that they never see that or steal my ideas because mm. that was definitely his his thing, too. Um, and another letter, he asked his father, like, why are you showing people my drawings? He wanted them kept in a dark room away from prying eyes. There was a nobleman who was repeatedly trying to buy one of his drawings. He never um, fulfilled that sale. He ignored it, which is interesting in a time when selling works like that would have been really hard because usually they want a finished product it's contracted mm-hmm. it's very like specific so that was um again really unusual but the end of his life is really the smoking gun michelangelo asked his um nephew in 1564 and he was around 88 to destroy a lot of his drawings in two famous bonfires and a quote from Giorgio Vasari, who is a Renaissance biographer in his Lives of the Artists, which was first published in 1550, wrote, shortly before he died, Michelangelo burned a large number of his own drawings, sketches, and cartoons so that no one should see the labors he endured and the ways he tested his genius, and lest he should appear less than perfect. So are we surprised by that? Like, do you think... An artist who had risen so far above the sort of baseline of artisan work mm-hmm. would go to such lengths to, you know, preserve his legacy and almost make it seem like everything he touched was divine. Right. Well, it was kind of in his own self-interest because, like we were talking about, all of these archetypes are really products of their own time. So if the thing back then was being basically anointed by God, you don't want anything that shows your humanity or anything that shows your fallibility. So it does make sense. Yeah. And it's a, it. that's a really good point. Um, and just to contrast it, because we're talking about the genius, Leonardo was definitely a different type of genius. He was mm-hmm. a you know polymath. In a lot of ways, the artistic genius it's a more general genius because mm-hmm. it's not actually like, can you do the math? Can you play the piano? Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like yeah. those are things that actually have a, a a physical output. You can produce something with art. It's more, 
if it's the end result that makes you feel something amazing, A, that's really subjective, and B, you never know how that actually happens, like how you get there. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay, so from there, that's, in my mind, the first archetype, the first kind of genius, which was not a genius at all. Like Michelangelo was saying, the artisan isn't enough for me. I'm going to put some, you know, legs on this. So then you have the second archetype, which I call artist divine. <laughs> um, this would be in the late 18th, early 19th century, the age of romanticism and a snowball effect of the age of enlightenment where you have individualism, originality and youth oriented trailblazing setting forth. Um, Goethe, Blake, Beethoven, across all of the artistic um, scenes, they elevated themselves and their art literally out of craft. There was this prestige of the individual artist like a holy man. Um, Whitman actually called this type, this guy, the divine literatus. Um, art was craft no more. Fine arts actually was used as a term for the first time in 1767, and that was defined as those which appeal to the mind and the imagination. So in the same way, art for art's sake was first, the, the idea was first propagated during this time. Artists are put on top of it all. They were elite, and though they were the ones being sought after as opposed mm -hmm. to artists currying favor with nobles or royal class. Mm -hmm. So this is actually the idea of the genius that I resonates mostly with me. Like, this is what I think of. Mm -hmm. um, and a painting, if someone wanted to look and understand in an image what this archetype is, that would be Caspar David Friedrich's Wanderer above a sea of fog. You see this guy, he's back to us, and it's just these, like, ethereal mists in front of mm -hmm. him. He's seeing it all, maybe mastering it all, but definitely a part of that whole upswept feeling. Yeah, and to me, the difference between the first two archetypes is, whereas the first one is more sort of like a tap on the shoulder, boom, you're anointed. Mm -hmm. um, you can do no wrong. This is you the rest of your life. The other one is more um, in line with kind of that 19th century spiritual vibe, that wave that everybody was riding, um, like Blake included, kind of thinking of themselves as a vessel for the divine. Like it's a it's a force that's external and it's moving through me and I'm just a vessel. Right. And I th but I think also... They wouldn't hesitate, I think, to credit themselves. Like, yeah. not just a vessel. They're like, but uh, I was chosen for a reason. Like, it's this cup talk. has game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. So archetype three that we're talking about is probably the one that you grew up with the most, or it's the one that I grew up with the most, which is called, we're calling it the museum genius. So... 50 years after artist genius were first institutionalized, you've got this MFA and prizes and fellowships and blessings from all the institutionalized powers that be. That's kind of what's going on at that point. So you're talking about museums and cultural institutions being formed around this time, and they fill their stables with quote-unquote geniuses. They put their stamp on the genius. So really it's a way um, for institutions to kind of cash in on this thing. They're aligning themselves with it, so they're a little bit the genius too and no no shock money is often involved in this too um, and to be a museum genius you got to have credentials um, you're a professional you are a teacher you are a writer and you're not godlike but in a way you might as well be because you're probably from the upper crust uh, you probably have a strong academic background you're a little bit of a celebrity so Contrast that with type four, which we're calling the creative entrepreneur. And that, I think, more and more is what we're seeing 
everywhere right now. So with a creative entrepreneur, we've moved into this era. Um, and it's funny because the word artist has almost disappeared. Um, if you'll notice, everybody is a creator now. And I don't think that's an accident um, that it sounds almost godlike because the broader you make the idea of artist to encompass the creator, the more people can fit under that umbrella. And the more people who buy into that idea means that you can make more money. Everybody can cash in. So with this archetype, you're seeing that you are not just an artist. You're not just running a business. You are the business. You are the brand. Um, there's a greater emphasis on cultivating followers and um, not cultivating skills so much as cultivating followers and notoriety. So you need customers and contacts versus patrons and collaborators. And I think anybody who's been a little bit in on the hustle um, in recent decades probably knows how uncomfortable this feels because you have to do kind of the whole businessy, networky spiel kind of thing. Um, and right now we need so much content churn to make the internet run um, that creative entrepreneurs are often valued more for their virality than for their art. Um, but they're in a funny situation since there's no real patronage system anymore. So you just have to be compelling enough to make money for your work through new means like Patreon. So what do you think about these four archetypes? So we've got like right now, I would say we're kind of in this age where it's like Instagram airbrush perfection where you take 100 selfies and you post the very best one. That's the most flattering. Mm -hmm. You run it through some filters and that's the face you present to the world. Um, and what's interesting, though, is I think the people we find most compelling are the ones who let their humanity and their fallibility shine through a little bit. Um, so I feel like we've come full circle. So I don't know what's after the creative entrepreneur. Well, and I think, are we in an age where like the creative entrepreneur, I think is the sum of the previous parts. I think there were, or it was like the inevitable, but it's not like ender. the best sum. No, no, absolutely not. It's just this weird, like catch all mix, you know, mashup. Mm -hmm. But the thing to be cognizant of mostly is there was a skill level and then there's the money and all of those all of the archetypes are related to that like the skill level of the of, of the artist as an mm -hmm. artisan had to be on point or you weren't going to get paid mm -hmm. and where the money's coming from and right now the money is right advertising mm -hmm. online you know how to game that system and in my mind the point that you made about skill or lack thereof is instead of being an artist who can produce a thing an object we are looking for people who can manipulate the platform that they're mm -hmm. on to like you said get more eyeballs become a viral sensation and then snowball that into something with more brand dollars etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. and for sure not everybody can be an artist not everybody has the skill set but everybody can kind of fall under this umbrella of creator um, it just takes like a certain amount of like balls, I guess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you can be kind of a person who's a TED Talk leader. You can be a person who um, runs creative mornings. All of those things that people get steeped in where it's this whole culture around creating, but there's very little creation happening. Right. So I think we're, I mean, what I discovered as we researched this and what I associated with just obviously one type of genius is multiple Simplicity, right? There's mm -hmm. so many types or different takes on all of them. But the thing is, is that they were all manufactured. Mm -hmm. They were a product of their time and the sources that sort of made them. So does artistic genius then 
deserve to be killed. And I'd say, I mean, four to one, I'm over all of them. I think they do more pain than good to people who Mm -hmm. are creative, who have creative spirits Mm -hmm. because they feel like the pedestal is so high Mm -hmm. and the things that they can do only um, they sort of grasp at that. But they Mm -hmm. never they never get fulfilled in that way, which is why it should go, because there's no place for it. Spoiler alert for what we talk about next. (laughs) Um, Coming up after the break, artist Danny Gregory will join us to talk about how he killed the genius to get where he really wanted to go with his work. Artist Network is proud to present SketchCon, an immersive, unconventional convention devoted to drawing, painting, creativity, and friendship with other artists just like you. This November 2nd through 4th in Pasadena. For three fun-packed days, you'll experience a non-stop smorgasbord of rich visual presentations, inspirational talks, collaborative art projects, technical demonstrations, sketch crawls, and one-on-one advice. For the first time ever, over 500 creative folks, including many top sketchbook artists from around the world, will gather in sunny Pasadena to celebrate our art. We'll share tips, techniques, and ideas from drawing people, urban sketching, travel journaling, lettering, design, watercolor, and so much more. You'll learn about new art materials and new ways to fill our sketchbooks. We'll draw together, laugh together, eat and drink together, and leave filled with new ideas and creative inspiration. If you love to draw and paint in your sketchbook, you've got to join us at SketchCon, November 2nd through 4th. You can get tickets right now on SketchCon.com. That's SketchCon.com, S-K-E-T-C-H-K-O-N.com. Okay, we're back. So we're here with Danny Gregory, who has written nearly a dozen internationally best-selling books on art and creativity. He's the co-founder of Sketchbook School, which is a video-based art school designed to inspire creative storytelling through illustrated journaling. Taught by the world's best illustrators, artists, and educators, Sketchbook School encourages its global community of over 15,000 students to draw and keep a sketchbook regardless of skill level. He's also co-producer along with Artist Network of the upcoming SketchCon event in Pasadena this November. Welcome, Danny. Thank Hey. <laughs> so as you know, we're talking about creative genius today. And I feel like with Sketchbook School, you've kind of approached this in a really unique way, which is that you're, I'll let you talk about it, obviously, but you're kind of taking that whole notion of genius out of it. And it's more about the daily practice. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what Sketchbook School is. Well, Sketchbook School, it was designed around the idea that um, one of the best ways to learn about making art is by watching other people do it. Mm-hmm. and um, But also that there's more to it than just the craft. Mm-hmm. That you, what you really need to do is to understand the artist behind it. Who, what, where are they coming from? What are they trying to achieve? How do they do it? All those kinds of things. So what we try to do is to create essentially documentary series about the different artists that we talk to. Very and cool. so every week you have... Uh, an experience with a different artist, and you get to see where they work, um, what tools they use. You get to look through their sketchbooks. So you demystifies got, it. Yeah, it just makes it into um, you know a job in a way, but also into part of a larger world that they're a part of. So, right. So, there are so many entry points. Yeah. So you can understand where they're coming from. Right. That's really yeah. legit. It's legit. Yeah. I mean, it's it started with thinking about the way that cooking is presented a lot today, um, mm. particularly the kinds of cooking shows that, that we happen to like, um, like Chef's Table on Netflix. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, yeah. And so they go and they'll do a whole profile of a chef. And it's not like a cooking show. Here's their recipe. And, right. you know, here's watch me julienne vegetables. <laughs> but it's really about... Um, you know, what is the story that they're telling? Um, who influenced them? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you come to understand it because I think 
a lot of the feelings we have about great chefs is that they have, you know, some miraculous, magical ability to make, you know, chicken breast into something spectacular. So, (laughs) but when you understand where they're coming from and what they learned from their grandmothers and, you know, um, you know, the mistakes that they've made and the challenges they've had, then suddenly it's not necessarily that you can duplicate what they've done, but that you can approach it on a human level. Right. It makes the whole experience that much richer. Yeah, because you're understanding not just the taste and you're not just an audience member, Mm -hmm. but you're a, I don't know, you're a participant in a way, in a meal. You can see yourself as a participant, I think, clearer that way, as opposed to like someone speaking on high. Yeah, and I think when a lot of people's experience of art, particularly contemporary art, is just that right now. I think that it's that it is a sort of a mystical, mystifying experience, mm-hmm. and you feel intimidated, and you feel um, like nobody's really explaining it to you. Um, and you could kind of venture into the academic world, and you could read a bunch of journals, and you could self-educate a lot. But really, why is that my responsibility? Right. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to make art into. Uh, art with a small a. It's not to change the art world, but it's to say that there's a place for all of us to enter it. And a thing that we keep coming back to is the idea that we were all born creative, that we all started our lives making things, and that when we were all three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, we made stuff. We made stuff every day. We made stuff without judgment, without fear. And at some point around pubescence, right, right, it all kind of changes. And suddenly we become terrified of making mistakes. We realize the the price that we pay for being wrong. Mm-hmm. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to reverse that a bit and say, what if we could get back to that original impulse, you yeah. know, and, um, and start being creative again? Well, the other thing that I think is really cool about Sketchbook School is that it's not just the actual instruction, it's the whole community that's built around it. Because I think for a lot of people, they'll never get that I'm an artist um, feeling about themselves because there's no one else in their life they have to talk to about art. You could be a person who is passionate about art, but no one else in your family is, no one in your circle of friends is. Um, And having that community, I think, is a really important part of that identity. Absolutely. I think that... um there's the way that art and artists are depicted in our society, the way that they, the movies that we see or TV shows or whenever we encounter great artists, there are these people on huge pedestals. Mm. Um, they're people who are dead. They're people who are really famous. They're completely inaccessible. Mostly dudes. Or they're Mostly loners. Dudes, right? <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, uh, or they're um, children. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of sort of infantile. Yeah. You know, yes. I mean, one of my favorite movies is Amadeus. You know, and, and and their Mozart is presented as this complete idiot, um, you know, who just happens to sort of stumble into his genius. And, you know, so I think that when we look at art that way and we see it as so other, so mm-hmm. inaccessible, you know, isn't art supposed to be speaking to us individually about our experience in the world? And if it's only coming from people who don't seem to bear any resemblance to us, how could that be? How could it speak to us if yeah. it's so if it's so far away? Yeah. I think there's also this notion that people in a lot of creative endeavors feel like there's an ultimate um, evaluation, like there's a test at the end. Right. Like you've got this kind of fledgling, gentle, hopeful feeling about something. And then at some point, someone will tell you, yes, you qualify. No, you do not qualify. And I think that holds a lot of people back. 
I think that's totally true. I mean, I remember the first time I got a grade on a drawing. <laughs> oh my god! Do you remember yeah. what the grade yeah. was? Yeah, I do actually. What was I remember it? It was. Um, we got an assignment. This is probably fifth or sixth grade uh-huh. um, to draw. Uh, the assignment was to draw birds, and so I drew this oasis, which was like in the middle of a desert, and it was surrounded with all these different kinds of birds and flamingos and eagles and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and uh, I got a D because the assignment oh, was up. the assignment was birds, not landscape. <sighs> I can't. I can't. Yeah, I so can't. that was from the guy who was our <sighs> slash um, art teacher slash shop teacher slash <laughs> soccer coach. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. The authority. Right. But let's it, but, face it. It, but I still remember that. I mean, yeah, it was of course. Hundred years ago. Yeah. So that idea that we're going to evaluate your art. And that's something nobody experiences uh-huh. when they're little. When you're little, everything you make is great, and they yes. put it on the refrigerator, right? Yeah. So. Well, but it's also know. the difference between masterpiece. And intimacy, like for me, the intimacy of, of drawing and sketching is incredibly appealing because it's very close physically and it's very personal and feels very um, graspable. And then the idea of a, a genius creating a masterpiece seems so, you know, how many white boxes and white boxes and white boxes before it's, you know, I mean, it's just, it's beyond. Like they're doing at one of those old time operating theaters yeah. <laughs> where all, there's all these people watching them. Right. Do it and it's on high kind of art making and it's totally alien. I can't see myself in it. I could never understand even how a masterpiece is, right. you know, and in that way manufactured. I think that's a, you know, that's a, a, a lens thing just the way i see them differently it's true I, mean, I was a marxist in high school and arnold hauser wrote this book called the social history of art and the mm-hmm. idea is basically that art becomes a commodity at a certain point and when oh, it yeah. does when it does then suddenly it has to be rare and it has to be not, if anybody can make it then how does it have value you know so if it's going to have value then we can sell it for more and more and you know it has to be scarce and and the person who made it has to be completely other and all that kind of stuff yes. and, and i think we now live in a time where we're seeing art made by all kinds of people we're listening to music made by all kinds of people and suddenly that's breaking down a bit and that's partly mm-hmm. why music is kind of free now right. i don't think that's going to happen with art but maybe it's going to happen with maybe it is i mean maybe all the stuff that we're posting on facebook is as valid as art. I mean, in a sense, it's more yeah. free than it's ever been. When you right. when you think about, you have access to every old master's painting. It's online at a moment's notice. Like you can go and take a look at it. It's not the same as being there in person, but it is something that other generations had no chance of ever being a part of. Right at a at a touch, but also just the idea that a person can put their work out there, and you can, you know a lot of the gatekeepers that keep Mm. art in check are kind of being subverted and they're scrambling to figure out how to, you know, get their hands back around the situation. And then, you know, everyone can have a website and Uh people know the tricks of the trade. And I mean, selling online is a is a beast in and of itself. And I could geek out on that, but I won't. But (laughs) it's an interesting thing to know that the more people are freed up to, you know, sell their work have their work out there for viewing have a and direct connection with people exactly it it there are repercussions then for the hallowed places where art with a capital a 
to your point before is supposed to sort of be and yeah. be you know transacted so the geniuses are getting nervous yeah yeah or the ge- the, the the ones who own them the arbiters yeah. <laughs> right. I, I don't think geniuses care about that <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't think true geniuses do but but i think it's true that museums have museums have lots of art that they don't show right there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a finite yeah, number of walls that they have mm-hmm. in the museum so so you know, if but if you think about how much art is being uploaded to Instagram today, mm-hmm. I mean, it's there's probably more art being uploaded to Instagram today than there is in the entire Metropolitan Museum, right? So there's room for lots more art in the world right. than there has been. So it can it doesn't have to be scarce to be valuable to be to move you, and so then the whole sort of set of of hierarchy kind of breaks down because mm-hmm. now suddenly, if I like it isn't that the most important thing? If it speaks to me, if it moves me. And I think suddenly you can make art about all other kinds of agendas. You can talk about all other kinds of human experiences and you can share it in so many different kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. I think it just changes the value of art in a different way. Not just the the financial value of it, but the social and human value of it. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you just said, and I I wanna bring it back to have you like, either own it or not, you were saying, well, true geniuses wouldn't care. I mean, do you think there is a genius? I mean, what would that be in your mind? Like, what would that qualify? What would qualify to make you one? I think we call people geniuses because they do things that we can't imagine where that came from, Mm. right? You go and you say, how the hell did he ever come up with that? You know, but I think that's because A, their genius has been protected, so it's like a magic act, right? right? So you don't really know, well, where did it come from? But what I was saying earlier about Chef's Table or yeah. about what we do at Sketchbook School is we're saying, we're going to take you behind the scenes and show you those things. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, it's not that we want to blow you away with the final reveal. It's more that we want to reveal to you that you maybe could take some steps that would move you into a place closer to that. Like mm-hmm. we can, you can do some of these things, you can have some of these experiences, you can feel some of these freedoms, and maybe you'll surprise yourself with what you make. And so much of what we're trying to encounter is, or to confront is the the blocks that people have, that society, that families, that mm-hmm. education has built up around people and has made them feel like they can't, mm-hmm. you know? And you know, we keep going back to, you once could, what happened and how can you get back to that because you know there's so many people who are students at sketchbook school who are readers of my books who people who i've met who all say um something happened to me maybe it was in high school you know in high school suddenly i was thinking i really love painting i really love ceramics i really love jewelry making maybe i can go to art school Mm -hmm. and somebody said hold on a second Mm -hmm. what are you talking Mm -hmm. about or they did get to go to art school and then it was time to graduate it's like well you have an mfa in painting now what are you going to do so you know i i think that those people end up wandering away from that original passion that they had Mm -hmm. and decades pass. They have families, they get jobs in other industries, they get further and further away from it. And they associate their art making with failure, with fear, with having to have a huge studio and having to have a a gallery show and having to buy huge amounts of equipment. Mm -hmm. It just becomes so heavy and so big. And in the end, it's like, can it begin with just being who you are, fun, mm-hmm. self-expression. Can we just go back to starting there and see where it takes you? You know, because right now the choice seems to be between um, doing 
something on a highly professional level, we're not doing it at all. Right. And I and I go back to cooking. I think if we all if we felt that way about cooking, <laughs> right? We'd all be bankrupt or starving. Or starving. Because we'd say like, well, I can't. Right. I can't fry an egg. I can't chop 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 the way. <laughs> right. Or I'm not going to open a four star rest, uh, right. restaurant. So That's forget it. I'm not going to cook. Or you know, I'm not going to win um, the Daytona 500, so why should I learn to drive? I'm not yeah. going to open at Madison Square Garden, so why should I even sing in the shower? Mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy. But, but with art, yeah. with art, we have that kind of dichotomy and fear and anxiety and judgment, and it's kind of, it's kind of robbing us all of part of our human experience. Yeah, yeah no. So, in thinking about sketchbook school, um, sketching is a, a major cornerstone of it, op- obviously. So, what do you think it is about sketching that makes it such a personal act? I don't know that it's sketching per se. Honestly, mm-hmm. I think I personally am not a huge fan of the word sketch. I strangely enough. Oh <laughs> yeah, we were totally thinking that must be like the yeah. the holy grail of all words. I call it drawing, just because to me, sketch is like sketchy. <laughs> Right? It's like like it's shady? shady, like what are you doing? Or, or, okay. or like, or something that gets okay. tossed. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a sketch, it's yeah, sketching. Yeah. You know, I'll just draw you a sketch, or it's just, it's just trivial in some way, mm-hmm. yeah. which is okay. But I think, um, I think it goes back to drawing, and particularly sketchbook. Like sketchbook mm-hmm. is another thing to talk about. So, what I like about sketchbooks, and and I've drawn a sketchbook for twenty years, um, is because I like the. The intimacy of it, as you say, I like. I like the fact that I'm that I have this little book that I can hold in my hands, mm-hmm. I can carry in my pocket, I can open it, and I can draw in it. I could show it to somebody else, and then they have a one-on-one experience. It's not. It's not framed. It's not hanging on the wall. You can't show it in a gallery or a museum. Really, right. you can put it in like a glass vitrine, but that's not really the same. So, it's this personal thing. Um, and if I do a drawing on a page in my sketchbook and I don't like it. I turn the page and I start again. You know, mm-hmm. so I have like a hundred canvases with me. It costs ten bucks. It's not a big deal, but also it's a book. You know, so it's yes. a book. So it's chronological. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I like to think of my sketchbook as a diary. You know, mm-hmm. that it's a record of my everyday life, and that it's a sequential thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what I do, and a lot of people in sketchbook school do, also is to combine words and pictures. Mm-hmm. So we're not just like doodling some idea from our heads to make into an a, a real painting one day mm-hmm. but we're seeing it as the final art form that that combining words and pictures to do either a record of an experience mm-hmm. or to gain deeper insight into a moment or to travel back through our own past or to explore an idea those are all things that you can do because it's a book you know so books and books also have um, value right because mm-hmm. we value books we you don't just toss them aside you revere them to some extent you can put them on the shelf you can have a whole bunch of them mm-hmm. you have a record of what you've accomplished it doesn't take up much space in your apartment so there's just a lot of things that are that are interesting about sketchbooks um, but when we think of them as just uh, a place to do sort of preliminary work in right. in anticipation of the real thing right that's what we don't do we we're the sketchbook is the end like that's that's the whole point is to make this and you can't really sell that so that yeah. takes away that whole problem it's not commodified yeah. yeah it just makes it it just makes it into a self-expression yeah thing. it's like as you said it i was like i just felt myself loosening up at yeah. the idea you know because i get super self-critical in a lot of the things i do mm-hmm. and like the one thing i don't want is something where i'm the creativity i mean 
I know the lessons you're trying to teach about. Don't be in your own head. And it it does. It makes it so much more like we topple this or we make it horizontal. It's it's ev- for everyone and easy and graspable. I just really identify with that. Yeah, I'm totally like, <laughs> yes, let's draw. <laughs> I think for me, I live in my head and in words a lot. And since writing is the primary thing I do, when I paint, I have like this weird kind of seven-year-old self-esteem about it (laughs) that I don't have with my writing. I finish it and I'm like, I did a really good job. (laughs) And it probably looks awful. But I have that feeling like, I I did great. I was really good. (laughs) And like, it's very much almost like taking my eight-year-old self and kind of patting myself on the back um, in a way that's sincere, like not condescending. It feels sincere. And I really connect with it in that way yeah because i'm a writer that's what i always have been and then i started to draw when i was in my late 30s so so for me it's i always drew well for a writer yeah it's just like you draw well for a kid right exactly (laughs) yeah so you saw as opposed to like when we first started sketchbooks when we started this facebook group and a lot of people said to us please make this into a closed group because Uh we don't want anybody we know to know that we're doing this I want to be able to post my drawings, wow. but I don't want like my colleagues, my family members, my neighbors saying like, what are you, an artist now? <laughs> right. you, know, you think you can draw? Right. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like this way. Nope. It's just us chickens. You, we're all safe here. We yeah. all, we're all going through the same thing together. That's really important. And you think about how many artists really flourished when they were surrounded by other artists. You think of mm-hmm. Van Gogh going to Paris, right? Suddenly he's surrounded by other people. And it's like, oh. Like, I see the possibilities now, and it's okay, and we can learn from each other. And you think about how artists used to be in ateliers and workshops and and things like that, you know, as opposed to now this myth of the artist in the garret, you know, by themselves, Mm -hmm. grinding it out, uh, you know, obscure, unknown, all that kind of stuff. It's, It's really... It doesn't have to be that way. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we think that with writers, too. You know, you've got to just lock, lock yourself in McDowell and, you know, crank out a, a novel. But human beings don't really function well that way. We need to be with each other. So, And I think we need to be in a supportive environment. But if, again, we associate art with criticism and loneliness, why would right. you do that for a job? <laughs> right. Well, and it's pleasurable to think of your creativity as something that is a lifelong companion, as opposed to... It's a great point. Like you said, this long drawn kind of torturous moment and then one single or this muse that just like flies in and visits you sometimes right right? it it just seems like you are it's masochistic you know like we're really punishing ourselves for something whereas the drawing or taking a sketchbook and and having it like you said one sketchbook could be a whole year or a really intense period of time that you're you know musing with it or through it that to me means you can carry it through all of your days and that's a really beautiful thing too well and i think it helps you connect to that moment in time too which is something that suzanne our guest last week spoke about too is you can take a photo on your phone but when you look at that photo two years from now you might not necessarily remember the context and i do wonder about that with sketching if you go back through one of your books and there's a cup of tea for instance that you sketched do you recall that afternoon do you recall sort of where you were in your life at that point you know, it's like when you um, do a scan on a scanner mm-hmm. and you can choose 75 DPI up mm-hmm. to 300 DPI, 600 <laughs> DPI, right? Well, what happens when you scan slow, scan more high resolution, it moves more slowly, right? Yeah. Drawing is like that. Drawing is like taking that moment and scanning it really, really slowly yeah. because you've got to get all the information. You can't just go 
building, tree, right. bird. You've got to say, like, I want to look at exactly the windowsill, and I want to see what the latch looks like. And So you're getting huge amounts of information. Mm -hmm. And when you get all that, I think it gets recorded in your brain in a much more intense way. And, it, and it's not just visual information. I mean, I can have memories of, I can look through a sketchbook, and I can remember a drawing I did 15 years ago. Yeah, and I remember, wild. I remember, like, what, the light was like what mm -hmm. I what the pavement felt like that I was sitting on mm -hmm. what the temperature was like conversations that I heard it's really like playing back a record of wow. that moment and it brings all this other stuff with it because I think it's it's all stored somehow in that in that memory I, now I don't know if somebody else looks at it they're probably not going to extract all that mm -hmm. but I think the intensity with which I looked at this moment probably is conveyed in some way mm -hmm. you know well but that's all you i don't think it actually matters that person on the other side i mean i think that's awesome you can you can pop it open and say you know look what i did but the fact that you were steeped in that moment i mean there are some moments that i wish i could bottle right. and take with me and hold even like you said not a big bombastic thing but a moment of pleasure or humor and i can somehow find a way to to bring it to the page and then go back to that as such a, that's a real gift. I mean, it's a really beautiful way to, I don't know, transcribe your memories or something. And to live, and to, and to live your life more, more presently. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think it's something that you can do, honestly, without a sketchbook and a pen. I mean, yeah. you can you can look at something and almost, and go through the same act of mm -hmm. intense looking and observation even without making a record, it's like it's like again, you know, being a computer without a printer. You, you know, <laughs> you're still you're still there and recording it. And I think we do have this. We have this desire to make pictures. Now we pull out our phones and we snap pictures. But I'm sure we've all had that, that experience of going to a museum and somebody walks into the room, walks around the room, and takes <laughs> yeah. pictures of yeah. everything Literally. and walks out. Yeah. And you go like, what are you gonna like? Look at them later. Is that the idea? Like, why do you even bother? You know, you could say. But even that's a little bit of external validation. That's I'm going to put this on Instagram so people know I was at this museum. So mm -hmm. people know I'm a cool person <laughs> that I go to art museums. Right. And I'm going to see how many likes I collect. And Ugh. it's much different than I'm here. I'm experiencing it for the value of experiencing it. Right. I, I don't know how to feel about that. I don't know if it's if I should say. Well, at least they're getting some exposure to art. Or if mm -hmm. I should say, you know what? I would rather there were fewer people in museums when I go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Seriously. You got to go when they first open. <laughs> well, I mean, I think for me, just this idea, because we knew we you were coming on the show and then contrasting to someone like Michelangelo who went through such efforts to... There's a lot of contrast between me and Michelangelo. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt <laughs> it. No, it you're up. closer than you think. That's not what I... <laughs> There's a Sistine waiting for you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but... The idea of a lifetime of, you know, work kind of burnt out, right? He wanted to get rid of everything but his legendary status, as opposed to what you're saying is essentially everyone is capable of bringing their art to their everyday. I mean, so did Michelangelo, but he chose to think that made him less of a genius. But in, mm -hmm. in my mind, and as we're speaking, it's almost like that makes us more able to embrace our everyday genius small g you know the fact that you can record these moments and yes if they're in a sketchbook more to the good you have this amazing record but being present it it's also that type of creative outlet it's just a way to explore your your visual world the things you're seeing and feeling and overhearing 
I, yeah, I think I think Michelangelo's objective in making art was really different than what ours would be today. I think I think he's more like I don't know Steve Jobs or something mm. like that in the sense that he's making things that he doesn't necessarily want you to know anything about until it appears. Yep, mm. right. It's not open source. That is such a good point. Mm. Yeah, right? I like that because he's a businessman mm-hmm. and he wants to preserve his techniques because he doesn't want a competitor stealing them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that it's interesting. You know, David Hockney did this whole. Um, sort of analysis of how uh, painters use lenses going yeah. back to Vermeer, right? And he says, why, you know, why don't we know about this? You know, if this has been going on for 500 yeah. years, how is it we don't know about it? You know, surely it couldn't be so. But it's because they hid it, you know, because yeah. it was like their, it was their trick. And so, so I think we look at that again as genius and we say, look at, look at how, you know, Vermeer is able to perfectly capture this moment Mm -hmm. but it's like yeah well there was a trick to it so does that make it less magical I guess in those terms but maybe in other terms maybe you have to look at it differently and just say Mm -hmm. well he spent a huge amount of time crafting this and maybe he gets credit for that instead well and also because a lot of people are up that's a conversation that our community is really into because technique skill is part of what some associate with genius and some don't some think well if you're a genius skill just comes it's innate but some say it's about hard work it's about putting in the hours and if you want to do something just like a runner training for a marathon in the same way an artist can put 10,000 hours into learning how to paint a certain way or doing this but some people I think cling to the idea of this genius almost so that it gives them space to just be average like they're content mm. with, as opposed to saying your average is actually incredible and you're making yourself mm-hmm. feel crappy about something that you should just be celebrating you know and getting it out there and letting it flourish so that's what bums me out when we when we talk about that because same with this photoshop style of of thinking we think it has to be slick and i think some people are really content with that so that they I don't know, there's this this schism between greatness and them. And they mm-hmm. can, you know, instead of just being like, we're all equal. And some people just know how to play with their toys better. But to <laughs> the thing that I think is interesting, we talked a little bit about Michelangelo as a craftsman. He was a tradesman of his time, essentially. Um, he wanted to hide that because that was considered something he didn't want to be associated with. It was lesser than. Whereas now you're in the situation where, um, yes, it is kind of the Instagram age, but there's also, I think the phrase is like, pornography of competence Mm. like so many people feel that they're not competent at things that when we see someone who is competent it's just like this ah and now people might be more inclined to say like here's all the hard work I put into it here are all the hours I put into this to get to this point which is so different from the Michelangelo era of genius yeah but But I I I don't know I think I mean I think what you're both describing though is that the quality of the work is based on its competence, mm. right? So, so whether it's Michelangelo pretending that God just gave him this gift, mm-hmm. or it's somebody else saying like, "I really worked really hard to get there," but I think there's another factor, which is the factor that it, it appeals to me the most, which is authenticity, mm. right? So, authenticity isn't about um, I drew this and it looks just like the thing, but it's I drew this and it evokes how I genuinely feel about it, and you are understanding something about me as a person. I mean, I personally am not a huge fan of highly representational work. I don't mm-hmm. think I think that it takes a lot of effort mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of time, you know, craft and, and exercise. But but a lot of times it f- leaves me feeling kind of bad. Eh. So, yeah. you know, it's like I can wander through and go, yep, yep, look, looks like a photo. Yep. Cool. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 
it's like there's this really great movie called um, I think it's called Waiting for David Hockney, yeah. and it's about this guy who spent seven years doing one drawing. Have you ever seen this movie? No. It's fantastic. So so he works with his, like these really intense lenses, and mm-hmm. he sharpens all of his pencils to this incredibly sharp point so that he can work very small because his theory is that he can put more information into this drawing than a photograph could have. Wow. And so therefore, when you look at it, you'll have some sort of transcendent experience. Mm-hmm. And so he spends seven years working with like special magnifying glasses and gloves and all this stuff to to render this beautiful th- thing and it's it's a f- based on a photograph of Marilyn Mon- Monroe really so okay. it's this photograph of Marilyn Monroe and then his drawing of it looks exactly like the photograph <laughs> of Marilyn Monroe it's done in graphite and he spends but his goal is that he wants to show it to David Hockney at the end because he says David Hockney is the greatest living painter and I want him to validate this experience so ev- eventually oh. the filmmakers are able to get him to see Hockney and uh, Hockney looks at it and goes yeah uh, cool like you put a lot of work into that but like why Marilyn Monroe <laughs> like that's his whole it's kind of not dismissive but just sort of like that's like like you missed kind of the point of art which that is like sounds heartbreaking it is sort of I mean you kind of don't feel that much for the guy the whole time <laughs> I was gonna honestly. say you're but definitely yeah. not Seems rooting like for the artist a bit of wacko oh. but yeah but, but I think it's again the point of art for some of us at least is to convey human truth to tell us how you feel to give us insight and not just to make it look like Marilyn Monroe. Well, but that is, you know, but to a certain extent, how do I say this? As an art maker, I'm totally with you. As someone who sometimes has to wear a crit- critic's hat, certainly, you know, evaluating art, technique is, there is a place for it. And some artists, it's funny, young artists tend to be in two camps. They're either starving for skill and mm. they haven't found it. And there that was a real struggle let's say when they were going to school and yet on the opposite side there is an atelier like um grind that they come out of school with no sense of their own Mm. vision like what they authentically want to paint or draw or in the way in which they paint or draw is totally it has not been nourished during those years of skill acquiring so it cuts both ways. And I definitely think it's, the in my mind, the best of both is finding what you want to say, finding how you want to say it, and then go with that because that is your authentic path. That's I, your... I, I agree with that. But I think going back to what you started by saying, which is yeah. when it comes to evaluating something, I mean, there's nothing easier to evaluate than does it look exactly like the thing oh, you drew, well, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think about how many times I'll see people people in sketchbook school they'll they'll post a photograph of a drawing they did of a building held up in front of the building mm-hmm. yeah you know I or see or, or like mm-hmm. here's a bowl of fruit and here lying next to it is my drawing of the bowl of fruit and i think well you know michelangelo <laughs> didn't do that you know i don't think you need to show me to get credit for how close it looks to that that's kind of defeats the whole purpose of it and also the, frankly, the photograph of the bowl of fruit is more accurate than your drawing was anyway. So, well, this we is evaluating? a totally underlying part of the genius because how many times have you been in an art fair or a museum? You're like, oh my god, it looks just like a photo, and you're like, eh, not <laughs> not the greatest compliment Uncanny you can give to art in my mind. Like, not the thing that you're like, whoa, I could almost and no, that's not necessarily the one path. of the things I think is most endearing about art that attempts to be representational but falls short 
is that you can really kind of get a glimpse into that artist's personality, right. which I love. Mm-hmm. Even though they may be frustrated that it doesn't look exactly like it, in the way they draw it, for instance, you can see that someone, I don't know, I have friends who draw people a very certain way, and I, I see them in the way they draw people. A really tall, skinny friend, all of his people are really elongated when he draws them. <laughs> I'm sure that must frustrate him. <laughs> but it's it's really endearing. It is. And I, I think that's something that we overlook is just how charming our own humanity is when we let it break through a little bit. That's why we like outsider art. I yes. mean, outsider art is all oh, about that, right? It's yeah. like, here's this person. They weren't trained. They're trying to find their way to it. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's that's their humanity. And I, I mean, my favorite artist to f- follow and study is Van Gogh, just because mm-hmm. he was self-taught yep. by and large, right? And whenever they, he tried to get professionally taught, he kind of blundered and failed. <laughs> but also that when you look at his work over the course of 10 years, which is the whole time that he painted, and you see how bad he what he did was when he started, right? He was, he was as bad as anybody I've ever seen. And yet somehow he persevered and he left behind, what is it, 800 paintings. Mm-hmm. He worked really hard at it, but he got to a point where he was kind of like the other guys around him. He was you know, almost respected as an artist, but then he went beyond that somehow. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like his failure was what gave him permission to become himself, right? Because yeah. he, when he started, all he wanted to do was to be one of those guys who sold paintings that people hung in their living rooms of like, you know, the views of Holland. And by the end, he was just like, nobody's going to buy this stuff, whatever. Yeah. I'll just make it this way anyway. And, th- and that's what we love about him, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when we come back, we're going to ask, uh, we're going to pick Danny's brain a little bit more about the nature of genius, but I'm going to put him on the spot a little bit right now and just ask if you could kind of tell us what your vision is for SketchCon, this upcoming event in Pasadena. Yeah, SketchCon. Um, I think SketchCon really relates to a lot of the things that we're talking about here because the idea of it is um, that it's completely accessible, mm-hmm. but it's also about drawing as sort of part of life the drawing ref- drawing has isn't just about sort of sitting down hunkering down in front of an easel and making something but it's about living and it's about the experiences that you have so we're trying to create um, an ongoing set of experiences that you can respond to in drawing but also that you can watch and learn how other people live their lives through drawing you can be around hundreds of other people who are at the exact place you're at, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's not designed to be, you know, uh, in fact, we've wrestled with this idea of convention versus conference. The con mm-hmm. stands for, we think the con stands for convention as mm-hmm. opposed to c- conference because it's, conferences are professional. Mm-hmm. You know, you go there and you learn from experts and you become an expert yourself, again. yeah. <laughs> but, but conference, but conventions are kind of like more wacky and you mm-hmm. think of like political conventions or Comic-Con, those yeah. kinds of things where you're just there and there are people who are dressed weirdly and it's just, um, it's fun and you meet people and it's about being with other people. And again, this the opportunity to meet people who are like you, to see people who maybe once were like you and now are professional artists, but kind of the path that they took. And also to realize how many ways there are to express yourself through drawing, to express yourself in a sketchbook. It's not just about, um, can I enter my local watercolor show? Can I sell something on Etsy? It's really about how can I get up every day and we're gonna literally start drawing, making art before breakfast. We're gonna get together and just start drawing and 
have fun doing it, um, that it can be part of what you do all the time. You don't have to go to a studio to do it. You don't have to take workshops, although we'll have a lot of workshops. But um, but it's really just about um, firing you up, inspiring you, uh, maybe teaching you some new stuff, showing you some new tools, mm-hmm. making some new friends. But I think just celebrating drawing as just a part of life as opposed to being a professional endeavor. Mm-hmm. And we're all going to be there. So come see us in Pasadena. Yeah. All right. We'll be right back after this. So back with Danny Gregory, we are still attempting to understand and decide who or how many of the the artistic geniuses we're going to kill. And one of the things that I... I am not a genius because I know I don't put in the hours, but Gigi Chen, who is a a friend and an artist, and she is based in Harlem, New York, and I asked her about what the most overrated virtue bestowed on art is. And she said to me, people think being an artist is so romantic and free that we are somehow magical because we can make things, that we thrive on having a perfect inspirational moment. The reality is being an artist is just like any job. You need to show up and work. And I actually find that liberating because the one thing I do know how to do is work. Um, When in crisis, when stressed, when whatever, like I know how to buckle down and, and do something, get something done. And I respect that because I think sometimes when something gets hard, sometimes you stop. And that's where this frees us to say it's okay for having those hard times those moments where you're like this isn't working exactly the way I thought it would I'm running into a an issue how do I and not putting it down but saying that's okay it's part of it work through it and for me that's really liberating do you guys find it liberating or uh, uh, well I think one of the ways that genius kind of keeps us stuck this idea of the cult of the genius is that a lot of the time the work you do is going to be awful, like in in some (laughs) capacity, not maybe in the sense that you're not capturing the subject, but it's going to be awful in the sense that you're not necessarily connecting authentically to the work. That's where I think the putting the hours in comes in, no matter what, whether it's writing, whether it's art, sometimes you're going to produce things that are are not your best, um, whatever that means. And I, I think being okay with that is goes a long way towards your future success with with art or any venture and towards your future happiness because i think part of that happiness is just this understanding that you're not always going to be perfect and i think that the cult of the genius really keeps people sometimes from becoming everything they could be because they don't start off perfect and so they feel discouraged so that's to me what Gigi says really rings true i think it could also be that if you are a quote-unquote genius and you do something that's genius <laughs> um you're now in real trouble though mm-hmm. right because you have to do it again yeah because you go <laughs> and, and if you do anything that's less than genius the second time i mean yes. doing it genius one time is hard but imagine how hard it is to do it and basically it's impossible to do it consistently right so now you have the whole world focused on you and you know wait you know and your whole circumstances changed mm. whatever it was that produced that first one you know, I mean, you're in a, a band, you put out your first album, you've been writing those songs since, since you were 14, and now <laughs> suddenly it's like, great, now you have nine months to bring out your next album, and guess what, it's not that good. So I think that that whole pressure of your genius probably sabotages a lot of people, and then, then when they get their third time, if they're lucky, their third chance, 
you know, are they going to, what are they going to do with it? And are they going to be ever get, be able to go back to that original point? So it's this whole conceit of genius. Right. How it's is like it actually? It's like a kiss of death. Where is it helping? It's only helping the guys who are selling the works of the genius, Amen. right? Yes. It yes. Could, because it becomes the label that you can put on and go, this is genius. It's therefore worth this much more. <gasps> right. And then it becomes like, you better know. You better be in on the genius. Let me tell you, right? Power is reinforced and money is made on on being able to label it. And you look at art history, when did geniuses even show up? They showed up probably in the Renaissance. Yeah, that's right? what we're arguing. Yeah. There were never geniuses before that. So why was that? Because, I don't know, is a big... They couldn't artists, make money off the cave painting. Artists, you know I mean? <laughs> artists were anonymous, you know, where yeah. artists were so clearly in service to a small group of people, and that was kind of it. But then, you know, you think about, like, um, sort of tribal art and you think about mm-hmm. people who made art that's just part of life painting the side of your house with decorations or whatever yeah. I mean that's that could be genius but it's never going to be celebrated because it's part of what we do we right. make stuff well in the same way there's an issue that you Sam mentioned at the very beginning when we said well it's the genius obviously it's a he right but there is a stereotype of both like an innovator a genius and the entrepreneur historically men historically men of a certain standing because you're able to take risks that when you're needing to actually make money for your literal to eat hand to mouth mm. then you know it goes out the window there's only certain people who are allowed to have the luxury of exploring their genius of exploring their innovative potential let's say and a lot of the foundation of that is set on, you know, class bias, gender bias, and... Mm-hmm. Well, also, what would it say if a woman was a genius at a time when women had no power? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, yeah. well, some geniuses have power, so... Right. <laughs> you can't there's an obvious problem with that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's... Genius, you're so suspect. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think genius is something that other people call you. If you call yourself a genius, you're sort of a jerk. Ugh, gross, yeah. Right, exactly. So... So, so who are the people who call you a genius? Well, they may be critics whose job it is to decide who's genius and who's not. That's how they get mm-hmm. paid. Right. You might be a genius because a, a gallery owner or a museum director called you a genius, again, serving their purpose. Mm-hmm. You might be called a genius by somebody who collects your work. Mm-hmm. But there's always some agenda behind behind it so why do we need to embrace it yeah exactly well and i think a lot of historic artists unfortunately i mean yes to commodifying them that was the service but to their peers to the artists of of now who are maybe looking back you know picasso had so many masterpieces and one uh les demoiselles de amagnon right that's a very famous painting that he did and I didn't know this, but I found this out when we were researching. He did 500 I sketches. I heard it was 700. Yeah. Wow. And that, and immediately it becomes, wow, okay. Right. I have a Picasso potential. I could make <laughs> 700, you know, preparatory sketches to get to this one painting or this end work. And that seems like something I can identify with as opposed to the masterpiece on high mm-hmm. from the, the genius's hand. Right, and also we know about those 700 because now they're probably available. <laughs> and right? being can, sold, and yes, being exactly. Sold, exactly so. They serve the purpose. <laughs> but the one thing I did want to bring up, Sam, that you mentioned about time and the fact that you would say you could be critical about you know a piece of work and understanding it wasn't always what you would want it. But if you spent more and more time on that particular piece, mm-hmm. do you feel like it grows on you the way... 
Absolutely. You know I mean, I think mean? there's beauty in the struggle. <laughs> I think you can go back. Um, and the, for me, it happens more when I'm writing, but I can go back and take a look at something that I really was kind of torturous, the process. Mm-hmm. And I see where I was really laboring. Um, and then either something clicks and I break through and I fix it and it's great or it's just done, which is sometimes a relief in of itself. And I feel proud of it in a way, because even though it's not what I intended, um, it is something I completed and it is a representation of, of who I was in that moment. And you committed. So I think there's a beauty in that. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. And I think that comes with the idea of understanding that certain habits, especially when we align them with creativity, can be really positive. Habit is not a word that I like to embrace in my own personal life because it seems... It's very prescriptive. Yeah, it seems like you're box. I'm boxing in my hours, I'm boxing in every yeah. minute of my day, and that annoys me. But I do think, in a lot of ways, it topples the creative, the genius, because it means everyone puts in the time. Picasso put in the time. Michelangelo put in the time. You're free to put in the time and get whatever you want out of it. So I feel less... I actually did this. Danny, I had your book, Art for Breakfast, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just take this slice of my time right now and soak it in. I was telling Sam um, and Chris just before about the sun was shining. There was a jackhammer. It was a weird city contrast. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, oh, I'm having such a sensational, you know, sunshine moment. And then I'm like, oh, city life. And I spent probably close to an hour working on it. It's hideous. I don't care, though. I really had fun with it and committed to just like filling the page with my hand and my thoughts and I was like you're so clever sometimes you know <laughs> uh, being my own cheerleader and but also like just sort of giving my inner art self permission to just play around mm-hmm. and committing though the time allowed me to do that because I think if I was hurrying through it it just feels like it's another task but when I slowed down and really did you know, focus on making the squares of the city skyline that I was doing, it became so much richer. And I Mm -hmm. feel like I can see back to that moment. So then what are some of the antidotes to this idea of genius? So basically what you're saying that one of them is time. Mm. So committing time to something, um, making something habitual Mm -hmm. um, is one way of, of killing the genius. Do you have any others, Danny? Um, well, I'm not sure where to begin because I was going to disagree with you. <laughs> Tell me. Okay. Do it. I well, love I, it. I think that habit is important. I don't think habit is... Habit is restrictive in the sense that it's forcing the part of you that doesn't want to do stuff to do it. Yeah. Right. So that's restrictive. It doesn't mean that what you make is restrictive, though. I mean, I think that mm. that the problem that so many of us have is we're busy. Life has a lot of much more intense demands than our own creativity, our, you know? The louder voices. Mm. And so habit allows us to say, you know what, there's this time that I devote to doing this. Yeah. And it's most of what I do in that time may be a waste of time, it would appear, but it's cumulative. And I think it's like, you know, any other form of exercise that we do mm-hmm. or meditation or brushing our teeth, um, things that sometimes we're into, sometimes <laughs> we're not thinking about, mm. sometimes we hate. But I think if you do it on a regular basis, then you have transcendent moments. Mm-hmm. And if you don't show up, you won't. And so I think that I think that it's important. Yeah. And and I call that book Art Before Breakfast because I wanted to say you can make a 15-minute moment in your day to devote to your art. It, that's all it takes. It, it, and it doesn't end. But 
it's not going to work after a day. It's probably not going to work after a month. It's going to take time, but you can still enjoy each of those steps, you know? And, you know, I think it's interesting the, um, you know, Ira Glass wrote this thing that, uh, that was on This American Life that's been, you've probably seen on the on the internet, but it's about the whole problem with beginning mm. and how when we begin things, we're competing with the fact that our taste is much better than our abilities, mm-hmm. right? So we th- we know what a good drawing is. We know what a good story is. We know what a good song is. And then we pick up the guitar and we're making crap. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so it's like you have to devote time and habit and energy to slowly start to approximate or to to get closer to where your, your um, taste is. But the whole time you're going to suffer because what you're making you know is bad mm-hmm. you know so that's I, so that's why i think habit is important because the own i mean and it's not a straight path you're going to have days when it's really great and then you're going to immediately plateau and it's going to be awful again and it just goes on and on but that but if it's a habit you go you know what it doesn't matter that's not why i'm doing it i'm not doing it every day to evaluate i'm doing it i'm going to evaluate my life as am i a person who follows through on the things that I want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's going to be the basis of evaluation. Well, and I think, but your idea, I think, of habit is aligned with what mine would be, which is it doesn't have to be at a certain place, like you said, a fancy studio, and it doesn't have to be under these conditions, right, that it can happen anywhere. It can happen at your kitchen table or when you're in the car or, you know, subway and and you can let it unfold. You can, or you can do it at a moment's notice. Is that right? Yeah, it just needs to be an extension of who you are. It needs to be integrated into your life. Yep. Just like you know, you give your kids crayons when you're waiting in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, and you give your kids crayons when they're watching TV, and you give your kids crayons when they're sitting at the breakfast table. I mean, you don't need anything else besides that. I don't know. I feel Sam like completely ignored your question though. But did I? Oh no, no, I don't, no, okay. I don't think all so right. at all. Because that is an antidote. I think saying it doesn't have to happen in the studio app between 1.30 and 2.30 if I miss it. You know, because sometimes right. I think, for me, those are the, the ways that habits, I fail at them. When I don't give myself enough freedom in the day, be like, I can, yes, set aside 30 minutes to, you know, devote just to that and then allow that to happen. I think that's easier than, you know, it, it's just this, it's almost like the process to get to the place to make the thing is that's what you spend most of your time doing and then you don't do the thing. You can do art right now. Mm-hmm. Wherever you are, if you have, you can. So I think that is the closer we can bring that to pulling the trigger, I th- that's better for me uh, in terms of Yeah, because you make a lot work. of bad art in order to make some good. And mm-hmm. going back to Picasso and Demoiselle d'Avignon, I mean, when you think about Picasso, you know, how many paintings do you even know of Picasso's, right? There's mm-hmm. like Guernica, there's the... Right blue guy with a guitar right. and there's I don't know maybe, I mean, I maybe one or two be. others right but, then, <laughs> <laughs> but Picasso but <laughs> the Pica- art history amazing. so many more but right. no, I get but you. I'm saying when you think of his genius and he's yeah. the most prolific genius but Picasso when he died left behind 50,000 works of art yes. right including tapestries and poems and ceramics Sculptures and prints and, and collage and, right, all that stuff. So yeah. he made, but probably a lot of it he wouldn't have thought was that great but mm-hmm. he made it in, on the process of getting to where he got to. Well, so, yeah. so in the end, if you spend your entire life making art and you make four or five amazing things, and you worked and you made 
49,995 <laughs> not such amazing things, then you're Picasso. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and I mean, did you see the MoMA show? Sure. Uh, you know, some of those I was like, oh, if you were alive, I think if Picasso had been alive, he'd be like, yeah, that's more not. Yeah. Well, you put that back in the shed, you know? <laughs> so, but that's awesome in a way because you're like, it's nice to feel shoulder to shoulder with an artist or and someone that is great and you respect them. I really love that idea, especially for learning artists to understand that there's no pedestal or perceived hierarchy, at least for what we are bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. So. I think we killed the genius. I think so, Do we too. kill the genius? Yeah, definitely. If you had to write a eulogy for the genius or put something on his, its, uh, his. its tombstone. Um, um, I would pour one out for the dude who can't get his life together, genius. Um, <laughs> and not for someone who has something clinically wrong. I just mean the person who is really invested in the identity of being kind of a screw up. um, And that's the only way that good art happens. I really value people who can um, integrate their life and their passion in a healthy way. So that's that's who I would eulogize. Okay, we're burning that boat. Mm. I will. (laughs) I think for me, it is it is the genius of one and done perfection every time mm. that's a hard standard for me to cons- like evaluate i'm glad to send you off and say it is it is all the things and the doing not the end product so mm. that's the one i would probably send off hmm I'll say the genius as a jerk. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. We haven't talked about that. Right? I mean, I think genius gives people permission sometimes to be jerks. Uh, totally. Right? And I think that it's fine. They're, everybody can be a jerk, and there are all kinds of jerks. But I think... And they would have been jerks even if they weren't geniuses. Let's be real. <laughs> right. But it wouldn't have been tolerated. Yes. And yes. I think sometimes <laughs> that being a jerk is kind of like what you were bringing up, that it's like it's almost comes with the territory. That if you're a nice guy and a genius, then you're suspect somehow. Yes. Right? Yes. But the more of a jerk you are, then the more closet. you must be like, wow, you must really be a genius. Because yeah. how else could you possibly get away with being such a jerk? <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. But, I mean, maybe maybe in the end what we have to carve into the genius's tombstone is just misunderstood. That we don't really understand what genius is. You know? That we think that it's some things. But actually when it comes down to it, like, we don't understand the fact that actually there was a lot of work that you didn't see that went into this. Mm-hmm. You know? Or there were a lot of people who propped up this genius and decided that this person was genius and the person next to him wasn't you know that there's that we that the genius is a performance genius is a is a facade genius is a creation of other people you know and that you should be a bit suspicious of it and you know that in the end it isn't it isn't probably helpful it's it's a good brand name it helps you to find your way through the museum it helps you to you know um perhaps identify what's supposed to be important but it's not really that helpful in Mm -hmm. engaging with individual works of art and it's not helpful for people who want to make art to either worry about whether or not they are geniuses or to be threatened by other people who are it's just it's not a useful concept for most of us so it's okay to kill it yeah let's kill it dead dead and cue sound effects (laughs) chris can you work on that (laughs) danny thank you so much for joining us this has been so fun yeah. See you guys next time.
Art Openings is brought to you by Artist Network and is recorded at Banana Field Studios in Brooklyn, New York. The podcast is produced by Courtney Jordan and Samantha Sanders with audio production by Chris Weingarten. Thanks for listening and be sure to rate us on iTunes.